Back to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. I'm your host Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the Year Polygamy series, where we seek to understand the practice of Mormon plural marriage. I'm really excited because I've been trying to arrange this interview for a while now, and I have brought you a gift. The gift I'm giving you is historian Jeffrey Johnson, the biographer and researcher for a lot of the wives of Brigham Young's wives, and I'm hoping that he can help us contextualize and understand them through their stories a little bit here tonight. So, Jeffrey, can you say hello, please? Hello. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in this topic? Sure. I grew up in um, central Utah uh, in a very small town on a cattle ranch. I went to BYU. Um, the Helaman Halls had more people in the dorm than uh, I had in my hometown. But I enjoyed BYU, and I went on a mission to the southern states. When I got home, I decided to get a job, and I was able to get a job at the library in the special collections cataloging manuscripts, and I loved it. It was so great to get to know these people who, uh, many of them long dead, that I got to read the manuscripts and catalog them for the library. Through that uh, association, uh, staff of the church historian's office would come down, and I got to know them. So when I graduated, I had um, had some plans of going to graduate school, but they had an opening, so I thought I would apply for it. And I was hired at the church historian's office. I um, had taken library degree uh, classes at BYU and history classes, and so working in an archives was exciting, and uh, it was just kind of the beginning of professionalizing the staff at the church archives. Joseph Fielding Smith was the church historian, and three months after I was hired, President McKay died, and he became the president of the church. So it was an interesting time being there. And uh, in 1972, we moved over into the tower, and I worked there as, as directing the cataloging of manuscripts until 1983. Then I um, was hired at the State Archives to be in charge of their reference, and so I moved to the state and worked there for four years, and then I was appointed by the governor's uh, state archivist, director of the state archives. But when there was a change in governors, I was let go after 18 years at the state archives, and I um, was hired back at the church archives, so I spent the last part of my career on the Joseph Smith papers at the church archives church archives. But how I got interested in Brigham Young's family, I guess I should really talk about that. When I was working cataloging manuscripts, we received some very interesting letters from Nama Carter Twist Young, one of Brigham Young's wives. She wrote to her sister 
in New Hampshire over the years, and these letters were fascinating. She always said, I know you don't want to hear about Mormonism, but let me tell you about oh, the theater that we have in Salt Lake and about what we're doing here. And she was always saying, oh, I wished we had the good apples that Uncle Joe had in his orchard, and I wished we had the plums that uh, Grandma had. And she's always talking about food. So I decided to find out who she was, and our our um, uh, basic source for Brigham Young's Wise was uh, Kate Carter's little pamphlet that DUP had published. And uh, they had her death date wrong. They had her dying 20 years before some of these letters that she was writ writing. And I thought, isn't that sad that we don't know about this woman? One of the reasons we didn't know is she never had any children. And so many people are forgotten if they don't have children to honor them and write about them. And I guess that was my start of studying these women, realizing that they were interesting, intelligent, and uh, different than uh, from each other. We had always seen them as stereotypes. Of The non-Mormons saw them as concubines, and the Mormons saw them as the perfect Mormon wife. So... I want to find out really who these women were, and I've spent about 30 years trying to find that out. That's great, and I feel like that's really in line with what we're trying to do here at the podcast for this series, because I myself really, really resented that we never talked about women who were real women and had real lives, but we didn't like to talk about them or bring up their names because they were involved in what we now consider a controversial practice. But these women gave up so much for this practice, and I think it's almost a crime to history that we don't talk about them. So I really think what you're doing is great. So why don't we get into it? Why don't we start to talk about the wives of Brig Brigham Young? I know that's really, really broad, but maybe you could tell us what it was like to live with Brigham Young. Well, I guess we should start with the first wife, Miriam Works. She and uh, Brigham Young joined Mormonism together, but she died soon after that. They had two daughters, Elizabeth and the late. We don't know much about her. We do know from things that Brigham Young said that she had been ill, and so he had to take care of the many of the house duties um, he knew about washing and cleaning and and because uh, she had been ill and so in his uh, speeches when when he talked he often talked about giving people practical advice about about uh, taking care of homes and he felt like he knew that because he had done that of course his mother died when he was very young, and so he had been involved with that too when she, he was a boy before his uh, his father married uh, his stepmother. But uh, he was left alone with these two daughters. He was very lucky to meet Marianne Angel. 
had actually been baptized by his brother-in-law. She had, had lived in Rhode Island. Her family had moved to New York. Uh, Her mother had, her brothers and stuff. Her father was kind of alienated from the family. And that's, I think, something to help us understand Marianne Angel. Her mother um, had a difficult time, a husband that was sometimes really brutal and sometimes not not caring, and um, so Marianne was used to women kind of taking charge, and that was something that Brigham Young needed because he needed his focus on on the church and uh, the kingdom. Her brother had gone to their home and and rescued his mother from that poor marriage. Most of the family actually became Mormons. Even her father met the missionaries and actually got the missionaries in touch with uh, some of the family members. But uh, her mother, I think, was a model for Marianne to take care of things that her husband wasn't um, able to do. So Brigham Young was really lucky to to marry her. Uh, she was a little older, and she was willing to take the daughters and take care of them. She was willing to take care of things while Brigham Young was on his missions. She was uh, known to handle finances, um, buying property, and taking care of the family. So I, I see her as someone who was actually really good for Brigham Young, and he really loved her. We have a lot of letters between them, and so um, there was a intimacy, uh, I guess, early on that uh, lasted, uh, I think. She would, you know, take care of what needed to be done. But she also was not very involved with the rest of the family. Susie Young Gates, uh, Brigham's daughter, says, we very seldom saw Mother Young. They called her Mother Young. And when we did, you know, she was uh, not very affectionate. But she had her own family, and she had grandchildren. She had, you know, her own she lived uh, most of the time in the White House. And the White House is the house that we talked about that was built separately for her. It was near the Lion House and the Beehive House, correct? Well, it was further down a South Temple. So is part of the reason why she wasn't so involved or Susan Gates Young describes her as distant because she struggled with living polygamy or she just kind of had her own way of doing things in her own system and her own business to attend to? I think she was cut up in her own business, and I think she also felt, um, I don't know, it's hard to say uh, exactly, but I don't think she had any anger towards them. She didn't show that. It's just that she minded her own business. (laughs) There were other wives who... um, were very much involved with all the children and 
providing uh, love and affection to the to the children. And Marianne was older than most of the wives, and uh, so she just, uh, I guess, just kind of kept herself. The two daughters, Brigham's two daughters by Miriam, were very close to her. Elizabeth was married to Edmund Ellsworth in Nauvoo, and so, and she lived across the street from her, and the late married Charlie Decker in Winter Quarters, and the Decker family is one that I'd like to talk a little bit about. His sister, Lucy, was um, Brigham Young's first plural wife. Oh, I'm so glad we're going to talk about Lucy because I just recently did a tour of the Beehive House with some friends, and when we went through, it was really odd. I didn't even realize someone had to point out to me that I was the one that actually brought up polygamy because... In Utah, growing up in Utah, it's not considered controversial, right, that Brigham had many wives. So I didn't think it was a controversial or disrespectful thing to say. And they had showed us this room, and they said, this is Lucy's room, Brigham Young's wife, and this is Brigham Young's room, and they're separate rooms. And, you know, Brigham had separate rooms because that's what people did back then. They had separate rooms. And I said, well, I mean, that's part of it, right? Brigham Young had a lot of wives to visit, And so it makes sense, and this is really cool, this is Lucy Decker's room, and the missionaries were shocked, or they at least they act shocked, and I thought, are we not going to talk about this? Are we going to pretend that this home was just for Brigham and his one wife, Lucy, and pretend that that's how it was? And of course, I I did my best to be respectful to them, because it's not their fault, but it felt, it felt really hard for me. Because I felt like here I am walking through these people's living room and they are being erased. And I don't feel like that is fair. You know, it's really been a problem for many years. The missionary department's in charge and they were very uncomfortable uh, talking about polygamy. I had a a dear friend who worked there for many years and um, she said that they were always told don't bring up polygamy. And she said that she took uh, thousands of tours. She was there for about 20 years. And she said she never had a tour where the people didn't ask about polygamy. And she said because the missionary department didn't want them to talk about it, the guides themselves didn't know much about it. And so they'd often just make things up that they'd heard, their seminary teacher had told them or something. Yeah, we had a similar experience, and, you know, I actually felt bad for the sisters because they were really sweet, but you could tell that they were sticking to a script, and I think it's actually really unfair to give them something like that, especially in Utah where everybody knows that Brigham Young was a polygamist. And that's part of the reason we go to this tour, right, to learn more about this sort of um, prominent Utah figure and his sort of eccentric lifestyle And, you know, that tour could be amazing. It could be really, really awesome because there's so much rich history there. But those poor girls didn't even know about most of the house. They ended up asking me questions, which I feel like put me in an awkward position. It was really odd. Well, and the other thing, too, is it's ridiculous to assume that uh, the people who are going on the tour don't know about Brigham Young and polygamy. We did help write a script for them, and um, 
worked on, I worked on it as the staff of the church historian's office. And uh, this woman I'm talking about, Bernice Casper, who was a tour guide over there, and we worked on this script. She took it to them, and the director just dumped it in the garbage can. Yeah, don't tell me that. That's terrible. Oh, I can't believe they threw that away. It would just make the tour so much more unique and interesting and authentic, which is something that I think we need more of in church history settings. There were people who really thought they should take down the beehive and the lion house. I think um, several of the general authorities thought, and then people would forget that we were polygamist. <laughs> uh, that was that's ridiculous. But anyway, that is that is a problem, and I I think it's a serious problem because people go away thinking incorrect things. One of the things yeah. that I think they think. You know, that's incorrect. Um, if I had any influence, I'd change. And that is that what you see in the beehive house is really not what Lucy Decker lived in. You know, the fancy stuff was added by John W. Young, Brigham's son, after Brigham Young's death. The whole back part of it was not there. And it's a shame that they love, they love, people go away thinking, well, he lived in this beautiful house and everybody else lived in log cabins. <laughs> and it's really not, not true. I mean, these, these people were, um, pioneers, the, the, and they, um, and all this fanciness that they like to show really doesn't give a correct picture. Okay, well, help clear something up for me then, because on the tour they said, we like we walked into the kitchen part, and they said, this is Lucy Decker's kitchen, and she loved her kitchen, and this is where she would cook 50 pies a day for her family. And I said, 50 pies a day? Why would she do that? And they said, oh, well, she said, it's because I love my husband so much. Do we know of Lucy Decker? Like, where does that come from? I'm not saying that it didn't happen. It, it sounds like an interesting anecdote, but I don't, I don't know where that would come from. Have you heard of that? I'm sure they've made that up. There's just no reason to believe she did that. Most of the family uh, did not eat over there. Of course, they ate in the beehive house. And Nema, this woman who... I was reading the letters to her, to her um, sister, was the cook, and she and uh, they had people to help her. Uh, several people that were helping her. She would be the cook. If any fifty pies were made, it would be over in the beehive house. Because while Lucy probably fed some of the workers and her own family. She didn't feed the family. Interesting. Thanks for that. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about Lucy Decker? Well, Lucy Decker, one of her daughters asked her uh, mother, what do you think about this plural marriage, this issue? And she said, you know, my first marriage was so bad that 
uh, I have no no reason to complain. She was married, and her husband was uh, not very supportive of her, and was not uh, was cruel sometimes. So they were separated when she married uh, Brigham Young. The interesting thing is Brigham Young knew the Decker family before he became a Mormon. And he married Lucy and he married her sister Clara. And his daughter married their brother Charlie. And his brother married their mother, Harriet. (laughs) So the Decker family was very much involved. But it, to me, is a pattern that Brigham Young had. And that is that His wives were people that he knew and knew their families, and they were not strangers at all. I had a junior high Utah history teacher who told us that Brigham Young would go up to Immigration Canyon, and as the converts from Europe would come through, he'd point out the women he wanted to marry. That's not true. (laughs) Of course, most of his marriages actually happened before Utah, but also he married people from families he knew, women he knew, women that knew him. You have the Martha Brotherton issue, and one of the things that makes me suspicious of her account of it is that Brigham Young never, in all his other marriages, never approached a you know, a, a stranger. Uh, she was a convert from England. It doesn't seem like him to have done that. I, everybody accepts it's true, but uh, they're taking it from, I'm an archivist, of course, and so I'm saying, what's the source on this? So really quick, just for our listeners, you're talking about Martha Brotherton, who was Brigham Young's first proposal for a plural wife, and it was a failed attempt, kind of an embarrassing story where uh, she claims that they harassed her and cajoled her and manipulated her and kept her in a room and then um, finally let her out. And as soon as they let her out, she went straight to the press and told the story. And then we see the the story was printed in John C. Bennett, who uh, defected from the church later on. That's Martha Brotherton, correct? Bennett was wanting to uh, vilify the Mormons. And her statement is very much from that point of view. She says that, or people who, John C. Bennett said that she was locked in this room for several days because she wouldn't uh, agree to marry Brigham Young and that Brigham Young finally brought Joseph Smith over and Joseph Smith told her to marry Brigham. I've got a copy of of her statement, but it's very much fancified, I think, from, and she became involved in uh, John C. Bennett's. The statement's actually published by John C. Bennett in his fourth letter. I don't know if Brigham Young said something to her, but there's things that just don't seem like locking her in in Joseph Smith's upper, the, the office in his store for days and to threatening her and stuff just doesn't seem like Brigham Young. This is supposed to have happened just uh, a little while before he actually uh, married Lucy Decker. And this was an example when he married Lucy Decker of 
that many of his uh, marriages were people that women who had been didn't have husbands or had left their husbands. Uh, but anyway, we don't know if there was anything that Brigham Young had said to Martha uh, Brotherton to make her make these statements. I'm glad you explained who she was. I'm sorry I wasn't focusing on that. No problem at all. I really like that story. So let's get into Susie Young Gates because you have these great quotes from her in your essay in The Persistence of Polygamy. And that's really where I kind of learned to fall in love with her and the way that she describes the women that raised her. You know, she's interesting, uh, Susie is. And of course, she has her own background and own point of view, her own biases. But she does say some interesting things about about these women, and she knew them very well. She was the first baby born in the uh, beehive house, and she grew up there until her mother took her and her sisters to St. George. Lucy Bigelow, Brigham's wife, took her three teenage daughters down there to St. George. There was a feeling that that they were a little bit out of control, (laughs) and they uh, had, all three of them had several marriages. Sousa uh, divorced her first husband and married Jacob Gates, who um, was a very strong member of the church and was really a good support for her. But uh, Sousa became very important in uh, literature and in writing and in uh, so her memories of these women are very important we don't have a lot of other you know um, personal things about them you can find clues here and there and in letters and stuff but I'm really glad that Sousa wrote some of her um, real kind of interesting views of these women it's interesting, of course, Sousa really loved her dad, and really he could do no wrong in her point of view. There is kind of interesting, her sister Eudora, for her third husband, took a Gentile away from his wife, a non-Mormon away from his wife, moved with him to Chicago, and she gave an interesting interview how she didn't believe Mormonism anymore, but she loved her father. She And she was the favorite of her father. Her father just really, he she was his favorite. I think that kind of shows how he was able to kind of have personal relations with, with these children, which is really unusual. Uh, I mean, there were 16 mothers to deal with. But for some reason, he was able to really be someone that the kids liked. Even those who left Mormonism was kind of proud of being in his family. They also really kind of remained close to each other. You would think because of these different issues with their mothers and uh, stuff that there would be kind of an antagonism but you don't don't see that at all they're supportive of each other even into their old age 
and helping each other. And, you know, several of them left Mormonism. Two of his daughters became Unitarians here in Salt Lake. And his uh, son, Alphalus, raised his family uh, Episcopal Church. But they were, when they got together, or when there was a funeral, when there was a, they were all there. They were all, when they celebrated his birthday, they were all there. Okay, well, you mentioned 17 wives, and I think this is a good time to talk about this really quick. Because although Brigham had an estimated 55, 56 wives, he didn't consider all of them wives. And, um, you know, that we know that he had 21 of Brigham Young's 55 wives had never been married before. Six were separated or divorced from their husbands. 16 were widows and six had living husbands from whom divorces had, from whom divorces had apparently not been obtained. And then we don't know the marital information for about six of them. I'm just going to read this quote from the dialogue article that you wrote called Defining Wife, the Brigham Young Households. And this is in 1987. You say, quote, from a 20th century perspective, the polyandrous marriages seem most problematic. Three of these women, Mary Ann Clark Powers, Mary Elizabeth Rollins Leitner, and Hannah Tapfield King, were married to non-Mormons, which meant, according to the theological understanding of the time, their salvation could not be assured. Mary Ann Clark Powers, married to Brigham Young, January 15, 1845, later said she had not, quote, been a wife to Powers after sealing and express relief when Powers went to California. She received a divorce from Brigham Young in 1851, end quote. So talk to us about what that means, even though 16, even though he was married to 55 wives, he only had 16 that had children, correct? Right. He said um, that some of the women he had married was, don't have the quote right with me, but it's some of them were, um, older than him, uh, women that needed to be taken care of, and that he wouldn't have considered them, um, you know, a, a normal marriage. And I think that's something we need to understand about polygamy, especially the early part of polygamy was a way of of being sealed for eternity, building a family for eternity, and wasn't necessarily... Um, you know, a marriage wasn't necessarily a sexual thing. And these women whose husbands were non-Mormon or were had left them, had been cruel, had been anti-Mormon, they needed to be sealed. In, in those days, they needed to be sealed. They had a feeling they needed to be sealed to somebody uh, so that they would be in the hereafter in the celestial kingdom and in, in this especially Joseph Smith and Brigham Young emphasized this um, this relationship in the hereafter. Uh, today, we say, oh, well, the Lord will understand, and if you're not sealed to somebody, you know, you will be, or if you don't like who you're sealed to, he'll, he'll take care of it. But in those days, it was more literal, and they felt that need to... Um, to be sealed to somebody for eternity. And so there were women like that, became part of his family, and we call them marriages. There were sealings. Of course, none of them were legal, and so we didn't don't need to worry about their legality. Plural marriage was not really legal. It was a sealing, a theological sealing. But it's 16 women who had children by him, 
And some of them had a lot, and some didn't. Emmeline Free had 10 children by Brigham Young, whereas um, Zina had um, just one. Well, now that you brought up Zina and Emmeline, maybe you could talk about the sort of the lives and what we know of some of Brigham's, quote, prominent wives, the ones that we know a lot about. We have Emmeline Free, who is said to be a favorite of Brigham Young. We have Zina, or Zina Young, and we have Eliza R. Snow. Those are names everyone would recognize. Sure. Uh, first, I'd like to say, from my point of view, they didn't see themselves as we see them. We uh, see Eliza Snow as prominent because we're looking back what she did during her life. But I don't think they would feel the same way, though some of these women uh, she was fairly close to more than others. And because of that and their activities in, in publishing and in organization organizing, we would see them as prominent. But I don't... Uh, I, I don't think the family saw it that way or these women saw it that way. But some of them did have the advantage because they're... Um, because of Brigham's support and because of not having to um, make a living, could do more uh, and because of their intelligence could write and could do more. Uh, of course, they all needed to support the kingdom and help in the building of the kingdom. But some of them, like Nema who spent her time in the kitchen in the Beehive House, uh, I'm sure she felt, by feeding Brigham and feeding his family, that was important too. But let's talk about them. Of course, we see Eliza Snow as the most prominent. Of course, um, she had been uh, sealed to Joseph Smith. And... Um, Brigham Young and the other general authorities knew these women who had been sealed to Joseph Smith and saw a need to take care of them uh, for Joseph. And in fact, in some cases, to, um, to raise children for Joseph because these women were sealed to Joseph their children would be Joseph in the hereafter. So uh, um, Eliza had no children, but um, some of the others would, uh, who were sealed to Joseph Smith and, and Brigham Young for time, uh, sealed to Joseph Smith for eternity and Brigham Young for time, then their children that, that, um, Brigham fathered would be part of Joseph's family. And I think some of these women, especially uh, later on, the ones that had been, we would call widows of Joseph Smith, seemed a little more important. But all that comes after they're trying to fight for polygamy 
and they want to make Joseph Smith the author of their practice because his sons and his wife was saying, no, no, Joseph Smith didn't have any part in that. So these women would be uh, pointed out as Joseph's wives and they could talk about it. And that comes from the uh, later times when they're older and uh, and um, when they're fighting so hard to make polygamy theologically correct and Joseph Smith starting it. Anyway, um, some of these women did do important things in the kingdom. Uh, Eliza Snow, after actually being ill the first part of the time she's in Utah, she's given the responsibility of organizing the women into the Relief Society. And she takes that responsibility very seriously. She had been part of the Relief Society in Nauvoo. And she felt the responsibility of organizing the women and supporting them and educating them. And uh, Zina Dianta Huntington uh, was helpful in, in that too. And of course became the really study prison after Eliza died. Um, I don't think uh, you mentioned Emmeline Free. I don't see her in the same class. She um, she and Brigham apparently got along really well because she had all these children. She was from a prominent family that Brigham Young would know uh, her her father and her mother. Um, but Sousa saw her as somebody who wasn't very faithful to Mormonism. And it's interesting, her children, there are some exceptions, but most of her children were very kind of minimal Mormons. Susa describes that by saying that she allowed her daughters to cut off their garments so they could wear the latest fashions. And Susa saw that as, you know, showing that... Well, that makes sense to me because Brigham did value loyalty. That was something we know about him. So it makes sense that loyalty would be rewarded in his own family. Um, I think... Um, I think she he she was just somebody that was personally nice to be with personally. She her family lived over on uh, Main Street, about where um, oh the City Creek condo is now. She had a lar that large family, and so she they didn't really fit into the to the Beehive House. Um, Emmeline, I mean, Amelia Folsom, excuse me, Amelia, uh, everybody saw as his favorite. And after his death, uh, reporters would ask her, were you his favorite? And she always said no, but I had opportunities because 
uh, and I'm putting words in her mouth, maybe she didn't say this, but she was younger than most of the wives. She could travel with him, and she didn't have any children to to care for and to stay home for. And so people saw her as um, as the person they saw when Brigham Young traveled, when he was uh, visiting uh, throughout. And so her dresses, her beautiful dresses, were the latest the women saw. Uh, her elegance as they, you know, uh, she came from Salt Lake. And um, and that, I think, translated into his favorite. Um, people saw that. Also, it became really kind of later when the Silver Queen bought the um, Gardo House. She renamed it Amelia's Palace. The Silver Queen was a non-Mormon who bought the Gardo House that had been being built... Uh, when um, Joseph, I mean Brigham Young died, and everybody thought, "Oh, Amelia will live there because she's his favorite," um, and she did live there. But Marianne Angel lived there at the same time. Yeah, we actually talked about this a little bit when we talked about the history of the Gardo House and how Amelia lived there for a time, and then, of course, she. Um, moved out when they were settling property disputes and John Taylor moved in for a time with some hesitancy. And actually, while we're on the subject about Amelia, can you tell the readers your perspective? Uh, I've read several accounts from family members of Brigham Young saying that Emmeline really, really struggled when Brigham married Amelia because she was sort of replaced as his favorite. We have an account from her daughter saying, you know, um, this was really hard for my mom, and then we know that the other wives were, quote, glad to see her suffer because um, now they would finally know what it was like for them to not be the favorite. Can you speak to any of that? No, I. it, it just doesn't seem reasonable to me. It isn't as if Emily <laughs> didn't know that Brigham Young had other wives, and it isn't as if... The only wife he spent time with was Amelia. I mean, his last last child was by Mary Van Cott. Um, and interesting, that child was named Fanny. <laughs> she was just seven years old when um, when her father died. So I, if Amelia felt that way. I would be surprised because I I can't imagine um, that being a reasonable response. It just doesn't seem reasonable to me that that she would uh, feel that way just for one wife, and uh, she would focus that. I think this is a good time to talk about some of his lesser-known wives. When I was doing some research, a name that stuck out to me was Susan Snively, and she seemed like a like an interesting woman, and there wasn't a lot about. I checked the church archives, I checked the, checked the DUP museum, and I could find very 
few uh, sources about her at all. I know she was German born and I know that she lived in Brigham Young's dairy house and that she possibly had one child that either lived or died. But there wasn't a lot of information about her. And so I really became sort of obsessed with finding out information. And so when I stumbled upon your essay in The Persistence of Polygamy, I was delighted that you had this great anecdote of her. And of course, it was sort of a negative anecdote. It comes from Sousa, Sousa Young, the daughter who said, you know, Susan Snively could get anything out of father through her whining more so than the charming wife could Clara Decker could get out of Brigham Young through her charms. And although it's a terrible quote, I kind of love that fun little anecdote. And maybe you could also speak to the idea that, you know, historians have this this idea that me you know, that suggests that the wives that Brigham didn't like lived in his forest farm dairy house. Can you speak to that? Uh yes. Um and you know that comes from Annalisa. Annalisa apparently hated living there, and so she hated living out on the farm. I think she also felt when she this is Annalisa Webb. She I think she felt when she married Brigham Young, it would be kind of an easy life, and she found out that Brigham Young didn't understand people just not working and. Providing, so I think it's Anna Eliza who uh, gives that idea. Anna Eliza was one of them, but the other source that I have comes from Todd Compton's work, where he talks about some of the women that were both married to Joseph and to Brigham, and one of them, and I forget the wife, uh, she was saying that she really resented being married to Brigham because he basically ignored her, and she had to petition him through the secretary, and he sent her to the dairy house to break her back and her body, she would claim that she was crippled because of it because she had to make butter or cheese for the, the wives in the lion house. You know, I I really think that, I'm not sure who, you, who you're referring to, but others thought it was really nice to be out of the city and out where there were was fresh milk and butter and, uh, and there was uh, a garden and stuff. The forest farm home, you know, that's restored now, but um, this is the place is what they're talking about. It wasn't that far away, uh, about 21st South. Brigham Young was proud of it because it uh, showed uh, a good farm. So he often took visitors who came and visited him. He'd take them out there. I think uh, Susan Snively didn't have children wanted to, of course, and she also had a personality. Uh, what does uh, Susan say that she could get more out of Brigham by her complaints? Yes, that's a great quote I was referring to. <laughs> Susie really loved Clara Decker. Yeah, Clara Decker could always get, because everybody liked her and she's so nice. Of course, uh, she adopted a daughter, Julia, Susanna did? Susanna Snively adopted the daughter? Because that would make sense of where uh, I saw that she had one child. Yeah. We don't know exactly, but she was an orphan as a baby. And she didn't find out she was adopted until she was, the story goes that she was a young adult at a dance. And someone told her 
that uh, she was adopted, that she really wasn't Brigham's daughter. But Brigham treated her like his daughter, and so she thought as a child that she was his daughter. But we don't know um, who her parents were. Um, some people have said that um, that they were immigrants that were passing through Salt Lake, but I don't think that's documented at all. Um, she certainly was a part of the of the young family. There was also another uh, adoption, and that is uh, Martha Boker. Uh, she uh, adopted a, a daughter. She is interesting. She wanted to be there at the birth of this girl that she was going to raise. And she uh, helped with the birth and she talked about, this is Martha, not Susan. Susan. Uh, Martha talks about how she um, took the baby out the mother that was giving birth. And she uh, raised that daughter. Her name was Ida. And um, uh, Ida seemed to know all along that she was adopted. I think her uh, mother Martha had had talked to her about that. But some little-known women, um, Nema, they called her Aunt Twist. She had been a young woman convert who had married another uh, young man convert in uh, New Hampshire. They go to get to Nauvoo, and uh, her husband gets ill and dies. And she marries Brigham Young for time, and she's sealed to her um, husband for eternity. And she is the one who is in charge of the kitchens. And she's the one who wrote her sister throughout, uh, clear into the 20th century. So she, uh, and everybody mentions her in connection with her good food. Uh, even people who uh, ate with Brigham Young, I mean, who, um, Visited and and uh, they would eat a meal with her with Brigham Young and they'd mention what a good cook she was. Can you tell us more about some unknown wives of Brigham Young? I know it's such a large number, and so it's easy to forget women, and especially women that didn't have children, didn't aren't remembered in the same way in Mormon genealogy and Mormon history in the way that women that had children get remembered. And that's. That's what started me on this, because Naaman didn't have any children. And so um, I thought it was really important to remember her, because she was interesting and and wrote really good letters uh, to her sister. What would you say to people that would hear this account and think that, you know, Brigham just married women for what they could bring to the family? So he just married Naaman to be the cook, to sort of be the housekeeper, the slave to his family, what would you say to that? He married her in Nauvoo. How would he, how would he know that he needed a cook out in the beehive house? <laughs> um, 
I think he married her because he knew her and she was alone. Her family was in New Hampshire and her husband was dead and she was a pleasant person. These kind of, I guess we put our own feelings in when we kind of make these judgments. But there's no uh, indication absolutely. from her letters that she had any resentment for Brigham. And there are women who uh, who don't have children for for many reasons, and I don't think we can assume that Brigham Young just ignored her. Which reminds me of Harriet Cook. <laughs> Did you read it, uh, about her? She is. Um, she was. See, Brigham Young married four women while Joseph Smith was still alive, and Harriet Cook was one of them. And Harriet uh, had one child by Brigham, a boy. But the story goes that she was a really kind of a rough woman and she could swear. And uh, someone said once to Brigham Young, you know, if women vote, what if they want to be a sheriff? And uh, he said, well, if... Harriet was the sheriff, she'd get the criminals. Uh, <laughs> Sousa quotes her saying uh, she wanted her room in the beehive house painted shit brown, I think is what she said. <laughs> <laughs> there is some feeling that um, she was so crusty that Brigham Young was you know, she wasn't somebody that Brigham Young wanted to spend a lot of time with. And she actually lived in a little house up on Capitol Hill. But her son was um, a part of the family. While I've got you, let me ask you about another controversy. It's This is something that's popped up in the last few years, and there was some news coverage actually in Utah about this as well. So there are only three pictures that we know of of Brigham Young with his wife's or wife. And uh, one of them, this was this stereotype. It's Brigham, probably in the 1850s. And he's sitting with a woman who is well-dressed and she has sort of like Native American uh, bracelets on, or at least it looks that way. And the fascinating thing about this picture is her face is scratched away. Like it's almost a violent image to look at because her face is scratched away. And there's a lot of... Uh, sort of speculation involved about this, but one of them is that this would be his Native American adopted daughter slash wife. Can you speak to that controversy at all? <laughs> there is a picture with, um, we only know of um, two other photographs of Brigham with his wives. He, there's a great picture with him and Margaret Pierce. And also a picture with him and, and Amelia Folsom. This is another photograph. He's sitting there, a woman sitting by him, we assume, maybe one of the wives. And the picture has been scratched, her face has been scratched out. Well, people have made up all sorts of stories about it. One guy said that this was um, Sally, Sally Kanosh. And, um, so that would be an adopted daughter. And since she was an Indian, uh, they scratched her picture out because they didn't want people to know that Brigham Young would be married to an Indian. 
that doesn't make any sense to me because he suggested to a Caucasian Mormon man to marry Indians. There was no shame in that. Yeah, I definitely think Brigham Young wouldn't scratch that out himself because he was a man that seemed very confident in his own choices. I don't see him doing something like that. Uh, I guess perhaps if it was seen scandalous that someone else would do it, that he was married to a Native American woman. I guess that would make some sense, but not really with Brigham's doctrines and theology. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. Sally is, I think, an interesting story. You know, she... Uh, when the the pioneers got here that first day, the Ute Indians were used to selling Paiute children to uh, in New Mexico and down in Mexico and California. All these white people were here, and so they brought two Ute, two Paiute children in to sell them, and the Mormons refused to buy them. And so they killed the little boy in front of them. This is in 1847. So Charlie Decker, who was Brigham Young's son-in-law, traded his knife for the little girl. And the little girl um, lived that first winter in Lizar Snow's um, room in the fort. Lizar Snow has this wonderful story about how uh, the the roof in her room was dripping wet, and she says that she's sitting in bed with an umbrella over her, and the water's coming through the roof, and she has uh, uh, on the floor beside her a Native American girl. Well, Sally lived. Uh, with the young family and mostly with Lucy Decker and grew up to be a woman. She, um, I believe she was in her late 30s or early 40s when she married uh, Chief Kanash, um, who lived, you know, down in Miller County. Kanash had been very friendly to the Mormons and Mormons were marrying Indian women, and so he kept wondering why the Indians couldn't marry Mormon women. And so um, he married um, Sally Kanash. Uh, they were sealed in the uh, endowment house, I believe, and she moved down there. But this was so far out of her experience, it was kind of difficult for her to live in that culture that she'd given up so many years before. But she lived um, with uh, Chief Kanash and lived with the Indians, apparently had a house, a log house that she took care of. And so I think that's why they're saying this woman might be a uh, <laughs> um, adopted daughter of Brigham Young and that he made his wife. Well, I think that's foolish. There was no reason for him to to do that. Yeah, and um, back to those Native American bands, It's historians have pointed out that Marianne Angel and Augusta Cobb were heavily involved in the Indian Relief Society, so that could be another 
part of who they were as well. Absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned that. The other thing we need to mention is that um, people have said, well, this was a, a a wife who was jealous, and so they scratched the the face up. We don't know that, and I, I, you might get that I poo-poo this jealousy because all of these women that were married to Brigham Young understood that he had other wives. It isn't as if they'd wake up one morning and say, oh, here's a picture of a wife. He has another wife. I'm going to scratch <laughs> it out. <laughs> oh, absolutely. But, you know, Richard Van Wagner has this, this account and I, I've also read another account by Susie Young Gates, and I think you're right, Annalisa Webb talks about it as well, that Amelia really felt replaced. She felt really downhearted. In fact, the press wrote about it at the time of her being Brigham's forgotten pet. So are there any women that you know of that maybe didn't feel jealous of one another, but maybe jealous of their position in the household? Or is that, you know, we know that uh, several women, six or seven women left Brigham Young, did it have to do with jealousy? Well, you know, nine of his wives divorced him. So not all the marriages, uh, you know, lasted. Divorces didn't always point to unhappiness in marriage, right? Sometimes they were more about logistics. Y- yeah. Um, are we talking about the divorce? The divorces happened for many, many reasons, but some of the women... Um, uh, decided they didn't want to live that way. They didn't want to. They they had someone else that they loved a lot better. He didn't. He was very open to releasing people uh, ceilings. So, and you ask whether there was jealousy. I think there could have. I think there was jealousy, and it certainly was not perfect. That I think the jealousies were common that normal people would have, and especially living so closely together, and um, and maybe being left out uh, of. Oftentimes, he took um, uh, you know some of his wives uh, traveling, and then. Others had to stay home and work. Uh, we have letters, though, that they communicated with each other. So I don't think there was... Um, I mean, there was always... I'm sure there was... Um, this person's not doing this thing right, and she should be reprimanded, kinds of things. Or, you know, she's treating me bad. But um, it would have been easy for them to leave if they wanted to. And it also was easy for them to kind of separate themselves. And, you know, Zina didn't live at the Beehive House. She lived down the street just a little bit. And she was uh, taking care of um, one of the wives who died's children. Um, so there were different circumstances. I don't know, uh, it's hard to, to have specifics if you, if they don't write about them, but, 
I can assume that just like any family, there was there were problems. Well, I just have one more question before I let you go. You've been so great, and I really appreciate you highlighting these women's voices. So I'm going to ask you a really broad question. It's actually three questions. The first one is, what would be the hardest thing or the best thing about living in plural marriage, especially to Brigham Young in relation to Brigham Young? And the second would be, what would be the hardest thing about being in Brigham Young's family? And the third would be, what have you learned from his family that you would like to share? I think probably the best thing was um, having the support and um, and having the the um, things that uh, he could afford um, and having the support of this this family. I guess the worst thing would be having to share him, um, I'm sure they had to get used to that. I think we need to remember, though, that 19th century women and women before that didn't expect a lot of affection from their husbands. We uh, certainly expect that nowadays. Um, but... There was it was a different world, and the relationships were different. But I guess I'm sure it was hard for them to um, to not be um, uh, uh, part of his attention all the time. Um, one of the things I guess that I'm going to say uh, that I appreciate is there was something in him. And the women, I guess, had a big part of that that made this a real family. My theory has always been the good plural families were structured like this. The the most successful, when I say good, I mean successful. And that is that the first wife was very committed to the church and to polygamy and to the doctrine. And then the second thing was that, uh, and committed to the family, I guess. And the second thing was that the husband stopped courting <laughs> and bringing new people into the family. Um, and neither one of these things are true about Brigham Young. <laughs> the, the, um, the best family, I think, was his counselor, George A. Smith. Bathsheba Smith was uh, just so supportive, so based in, in doctrine and gospel, and so loving to all the other wives and their children. And he married six women and then stopped. And so their family was very... Oh, and the other thing is that they didn't all live in the same house. They um, lived um, in Provo and in Parowan and Salt Lake. So the the women could develop this relationship with each other. Bathsheba could write 
to one of the wives and says, why don't you send your daughter up for the the winter? They're having a singing school and she can go to it and she can live with me. Brigham Young's family, uh, I think uh, Marianne Angel, as much as I think she was really important in and um, adding a lot of strength, she kind of separated herself. So she wasn't playing that role that um, that I think the best one would have. And he, commi- he kept adding wives. So since it wasn't an ideal situation, that it worked so well, I think is kind of a credit to him and to the women and to the children because they really created a close-knit family. Well, I would just really appreciate you coming on and giving life to these stories. And even you've given us a good reminder of something, which is that these women are not always to be pitied. And this is one of the reasons why I started this podcast series to begin with is because even though this was really hard and there was a lot of abuse in the system and it was really ugly sometimes that these women found courage and strength and power through it and that we need to honor their voices and their experiences. So thank you for that. Quick, do you want to point us to any of the work that you're, that you'd like to promote or any projects you're working on? You know, I can, can kind of, um, Leonard Arrington's biography of, um, Brigham Young, um, is, really disappointing in the way he treated the women. He makes a chapter, you know, the wives. Um, John Turner included the wives throughout Brigham's life in his new biography. And I have said that I really like that because, you know, they're, they were part of Brigham's lives. I do find with John some things that I think uh, he uh, interprets things kind of negatively and um, and differently than I would. So um, I'm not recommend recommending that except that part. I think we don't have a good, you know, a really one that I'd like to recommend. I've been asked to do one like Todd Compton did on Joseph Swise, so have a, the history of each woman, and I'd really like that a lot. The problem is Todd Compton had 27, and they lived with Joseph Smith just a few months, and some of them just a few weeks. I have uh, 56, <laughs> and... <laughs> They lived, some of them lived with Brigham Young for 40 years. So. What you're saying is you're going to write a seven part series? <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. I've got just, um, a lot of files of material that I don't know how, how to do, how to get the material out. But I guess I can say that I'm not really satisfied with anything that's been written so far. I guess we'll just have to bring you back 56 times.
Thanks again for coming on and agreeing to come on here and giving voice to these women. It's clear that you have an affection for them and that you are giving a woman like me more examples and patterns of how Mormonism can be lived and was lived. So thank you for your work. Well, thank you for allowing me. And I, I think a lot of these women, I think uh, they were, they had different um, abilities. They had different experiences in the marriage that uh, really interesting and uh, in some very courageous women. Well, everyone, thanks for joining us for another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives Podcast. Please leave a donation on the website at feministmormonhousewivespodcast.org.